Welcome back to What We Don't Know. I'm your host, Xander Schultz. I'm over here with Phineas. What's going on, Phineas? Not much. How are you, Xander? I'm doing good. I'm doing good, man. So this week we have Shelly Tegleski, who started a movement called Pandemic of Love. And I think you guys had a really interesting conversation that spoke to not only the amazing movements that can happen inside of a situation as terrible as COVID-19, but also the idea that mutual aid as a system can be really significant in how we combat many challenges that we face as a society. Was that a surprise that you had as well? You know, when I think about what she's done, it's so wonderful to see so many people answer the bell when we have these moments of shared adversity. Uh, In some ways, it's dystopian because things like this shouldn't be necessary. This was launched and so many people responded because of a failure of our systems to have the safety nets we need. And so so it lands on us as individuals and as communities to to catch each other in these moments. But man, did she and did this community answer the bell? This whole thing uh, has reached a size and a, a level of momentum that is really awe-inspiring. And it's such a simple concept, really, at its core. Yeah, and I think one thing, as somebody that tries hard to believe in our systems, and ironically, we're having this conversation on a day when democracy is being tested, but the systems in in place in this country... I try really hard to believe in them, and I know you do too. I think this is, it is kind of a failure of our institutions that are supposed to step in in times of crisis. Like, and, and there's a digression here around basically like the marketing and PR around taxes and why, you know, essentially taxes would fill the gaps that this is having to fill right now. And we should feel really good about it, but we never feel good about taxes. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think the politics always seeps into these things, right? I think that this is more a story to me of just human ingenuity and creativity. 100%. I think one thing I'm really learning from Shelly too and her success here is the power of humility. Like she did not, she not stick a flag on the ground and say, this is my thing and I'm brilliant and this is the model, et cetera. She just created a platform. And because she was humble in the creation of that platform, it allowed a lot of other people to step into it and be the heroes in their own stories. You know, we say this all the time, we need more female leadership, we knew more humility from our leadership. This is what happens when you have humble leadership, when you have heart-centered leadership, when you have female leadership. Uh, I think Pandemic of Love and Shelley is a great example of what happens when those types of people are either elevated in our society or find a way to elevate themselves and their initiatives. It also shows that some entrepreneurial creativity can be applied to our systems. There are things we can learn from the private markets. And that was another thing that was certainly not what Shelly was trying to do, I don't think. I think she was just trying to help people, but is, I think, a lesson as well. Totally. I'm really excited to introduce all of our listeners to Shelly. I I really think we're going to be good friends for life and do many things together. And I'm just uh, really lucky to be a small part of her story. And I hope to continue to be a part of her story. So let's get into it. What is Pandemic of Love? How did it get started? What's the origin story? Where are you at today? So Pandemic of Love started around my kitchen table in South Florida in March of 2020, this year. 
Right. It's like a lifetime ago, quite frankly. I have to remind myself that we're, we haven't even been around for a year. I just saw we had our first COVID case in the U.S. on March 1st. Time is going so slow and so fast. Exactly. It's like one long, continuous day. <laughs> but you got this thing started early in this process then. It was March. Well, two weeks in, but remember, in. Florida was one of the last states to kind of shut down just partly because of our leadership, but also partly because of the fact that, you know, we're, we're like this outdoorsy, the weather's, it wasn't totally. really sure. So, um, you know, we didn't really feel the effects, um, as early as places like California and Seattle, you know, Washington state, et cetera, New York, of course. Yep. So, but it was inevitable. It was inevitable that these closures were coming and there was a lot of fear, you know, um, and people were having anxiety. They were really afraid of sheltering in home uh, because they were worried about how they were just going to make ends meet without an income. Right. There was no game plan in place. People were just being told like, okay, go get enough supplies and go to your house. You know, it's, it's the same issue that actually Floridians face during uh, hurricane season. You know, if you don't have the funds or the finances to actually Poor. weather the storm. Yeah, get more than what you need at the moment. Everyone's, everyone's living check to check. Exactly. And so a lot of people in my community my meditation community. So I'm a meditation teacher and I started a, a community in South Florida in 2015. And it'll actually be five years since this weekend, uh, November 15th, that I started this community with 12 friends that grew to become a, a Sangha, uh, which is basically a meditation community for uh, about 15,000 people. And we would meet on a weekly basis. And, you know, I started to see the bubbling up of the comments on my social media feed and in our meditation group feed as well. People were really just worried about how am I going to feed my kids? How am I going to keep my lights on? You know, I, can't, I, I don't have enough gas in my car. I can't keep my cell phone on. Um, these are all like essentials, you know, just like you look at like Maslow's hierarchy of needs and like you know, how do we make sure that people are able to meet those needs, especially yeah. in a wealthy country like the United States? At the moment, too, it was very apparent that we were going to be slow to mobilize. Like if you looked at the president we currently have, uh, <laughs> at the defeated president we currently have, uh, it was apparent we weren't going to jump right into action. There was still a lot of denial happening at the top about, you know, whether this was you know going to be a big thing or it's going to go away by Easter. I remember it was like an early, yeah. was an early uh, statement. And so, so I think you're rightfully identifying, you know, these upcoming problems and probably I'm, I'm putting words in your mouth, but making the correct assumption that we're probably not going to get the mobilization at the top of the ladder that, some places were starting to starting to receive. Well, you know, I mean, I learned a lot of lessons from a lot of the humanitarian work that I did uh, the year before and in years prior, but really the year before with uh, Hurricane Dorian and the devastation that it caused in the Bahamas. Mm -hmm. I was very involved, you know, mobilizing even before and then while the hurricane was like hovering over the Bahamas, because we already knew that there was going to be parts of the Bahamas that would be devastated. And, you know, we learned by looking at like Haiti and Houston and Puerto Rico and all these other, you know, areas that were devastated by previous storms that it takes a long time for these organizations that are 
known that are well known to get their act together, you know, to actually get the aid to the individuals that need it the most. And so having these relationships with these people in my community, I, and, and knowing that there were individuals in my community as well who have more than enough. And that literally if they took on like 20 families, it would not change their quality of life in any way, shape or form, you know? So the idea was just like, how do we create some sort of equity? How do we circumvent this whole process of red tape and, you know, bureaucracy of trying to get people help? How do we do it without any overhead? How do we do it directly? You know, because these needs were things that people needed like right away, diapers, food. Sure. When you're out, you're out. Yeah. So the idea really stemmed from the concept of just matching up the haves, if you will, with the have nots and making it really easy for people who were in need to ask for help, because that's like the hardest thing that people have to do in life, right? It's so hard to ask for help. It's so hard to be vulnerable, especially if you've never been in that position before. And especially if you're you know, afraid of kind of getting rejected in any which way, right? So we wanted to make it as simple and seamless as possible and just get people the basics that they needed in a very direct way. And so I just, you know, I'm not not a technologically savvy person in any way, shape or form. And the easiest way in my mind that I could think about doing this is just to create two Google Forms. And the Google Forms were really simple. They just had maybe, you know, less than 10 questions each. And the, at, the, at the beginning, I didn't even ask people like, what's your zip code or where are you from? Because I just assumed they were from my community. And uh, the forms were named Give Help and Get Help, the, like as simple as it comes. I posted those two links with like a 40 second video on my socials. And the next morning when I woke up and I just like, I, I literally spit my coffee out <laughs> going on, like, who are these people? I don't even know half of these people that signed up to give and signed up you know, signed up for help. And it was remarkable because initially we had more people willing to help than actually were asking for help. You know, we had hundreds of people sign up and they were from all around the country, but also people from outside of the country. And literally within a few days, just because so many influencers and celebrities wound up getting a hold of these links, they wound up sharing, uh, sharing the links and sharing what we were doing that, um, you know, we had thousands of applicants within a matter of days and thousands of people that were reaching out to say like, hey, how can I help? And how do I start this in my community? So I, I had to really kind of put my corporate hat back on and say, okay, right. you know, let me create some sort of like standard operating procedures and like training and some sort of like crowdsourcing of like information and best practices and, and really community, because I think that's, that's really what it's about. It's about making sure that we all are like elevating each other and sharing information so that we can effectively serve others as best as we can. And so where we are today is pretty remarkable. You know, we've, we've matched over 750,000 people. We have transacted directly at least and I say at least because we only count like the first transaction that occurs. We don't know what really happens after. I mean, sometimes we do, but not not every time. Uh, but we've transacted over $42.5 million since March 14th. And the way that it takes place is beautiful. The most beautiful byproduct of this 
organization is the fact that people have to connect directly for the transaction to take place. So if you're a donor that can actually, you know, has a wherewithal to give, you also know that when you're signing up for the form, you have to interact with the person that you're giving right. to and ask them like, what do you need? How can I help you? And you actually have this amazing opportunity to, to make a person feel seen and heard, of course, but also to like, just step outside of yourself for like a few minutes and actually walk a mile in somebody else's shoes or see the world through, you know, their lens, which I don't think a lot of us do very often, especially because we haven't for a long time this year had the opportunity to even step outside of our house, let alone right. step outside of ourselves. Our country in general is is intentionally designed in a lot of ways. Like there's there's laws around how big an apartment can be so poor people can't live in certain neighborhoods because the apartments become become too cheap, right? And so we've intentionally designed uh, our society in a lot of ways so poor people don't know wealthy people. And so f- folks don't have these cross class or cross wealth class friendships, which is, it's going to be hard to measure. I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but it's going to be hard to measure the impact of what you've done because of that, because you didn't say, let's just have this transactional thing that also would have been heroic, like in and of itself, if you just move money from groups that had to groups that didn't, that would have been heroic. But um, there are very few operations uh, and initiatives in our country that try to build real relationships, and, and those are irreplaceable, and those can last a lifetime. So it, it's yeah. incredible the ways in which you all made things happen in this moment. Yeah, no, it's it's actually it's incredibly humbling and just moving to hear some of the stories. And now hundreds, you know, thousands of stories that we've gotten emails about and people have posted about people who have connected across, believe it or not, in these times, party lines, who people who were initially appalled at the fact that they were paired up with somebody on the other side of the fence. And then yet they were able to connect from the heart. You know, it's like a Mm. heart-centered connection because we all have empathy. You know, we all have these like mirror neurons. It's what causes us to cry at a movie when old Yeller dies or what have you, you know? But yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's incredible because I think what happens is, is that it's very hard to watch another human being suffer and just walk away. Right. You know, it's really, really hard to do that. So if you're the type of person that really signed up to be a donor, something already was like stirred inside of you. Mm-hmm. And then when you were matched with somebody that sort of didn't fit into your box right. and suddenly you're like, whoa, like that was a very different interaction, you know, and you're curious about it. And you're also, it's an opportunity to be curious about yourself. Like, how are you reacting to people? You know, where can you be a right. person? And so um, those are like some of the byproducts that are, that have really, you know, happened and, and resonated with me when, when I hear these stories, it's, it's beautiful to pay somebody's like overdue rent bill. And, but it's, it's something entirely different when you're also sending them care packages and making sure that their kids have like winter coats and you're going like above and beyond because now you're really invested in this individual that you don't know. First of all, I, I want to touch on like what actually happened, like the scale of what happened. Like this sounds like, oh, it's like, oh, this is a cute story. The scale at which this happened was insane. You moved something like $30 million or you know, $30 million in resources, right? Am I, am I remembering that number correctly? 
Yeah, 42. We're at 42 and a half million right now. 42 and a half million. Yeah, no, I, I'll tell you this though. It's, it's, it's an astounding number, but it's super important that I break it down for you mathematically because I think people think about that number and they think, wow, that's like overwhelming or that's like impossible. It's so not impossible. It just is a testament to how things can be done incrementally. That when a lot of people do a little, it winds up being a lot. The average transaction, when you factor it out by the number of, tr- of matches that we've made, is mm-hmm. $135. It's not, I mean, some people give as much as $5,000. Some people give as you know little as $50. But the reality is that like it's just a testament to how every single person actually kind of rowing in the same direction of kindness, it makes a huge difference in the world. So you, you taught me this space is called mutual aid. I hadn't heard of mutual aid before this. Were you familiar? Did you study mutual aid? Were you a participant in mutual aid programs beforehand? Can you share a little bit about that space in your introduction to mutual aid? Yeah. So, you know, mutual aid is the best and easiest way I can describe it is it's like what your parents or grandparents or my grandparents would call back in the day, mm-hmm. back in the day when we were kids, you know, when Bobby next door, you know, was sick, mom would go over with, you know, chicken soup and right. so lost his job. Like we all made sure that the kids had something to eat. Like it was that it takes a village mentality that we've mm-hmm. also lost in this country very much, you know? And I think it's, it's such a beautiful way of existing, of creating these safety nets and these communities of care that used to exist pre-industrialization of this country. Mm-hmm. And so mutual aid was kind of reintroduced in a bigger way, actually in activist spaces. When we talk about self-care, And when we talk about self-care for activists, we don't talk about it in an individualistic sense. We talk about it in a communal sense. The word self is actually very, um, it sends us off in a completely different direction because we think it's about the self, but really it's not. It's about how do we each individually create these self-care plans or coping plans to help build resilience But also if we're in communities that are underserved or that are being attacked or where just by virtue of our existence, we're being defined immediately by somebody else, then self-care is is our way of existing in this world. And so the only way to be able to do that successfully is if we rely on each other and we actually hold each other accountable, yes, but also we remove obstacles for each other we can enact our own kind of self-care plans and coping plans to just be able to exist in this world. Is there, is there a long-term, I'm like projecting, I have no idea if this, is there a long-term goal in some capacity of like, and I don't know if this is your goal or the space's goal or whatnot, but in, in a lot of ways, taxes are mutual aid, right? That This is like, like it's systemic mutual aid in some ways. And like, it feels like we've lost the thread or the narrative on like, it's not a given historically that like our society would pool like incredible amounts of money and create welfare programs and public education and all the things that we even do have now. Like we do do, we've legislated it and you go to jail if you don't pay your taxes and stuff, but we do we do like, you know, pool resources and then, and then help each other in some capacity. And I just feel like what you're showing is like, if we do it a little bit more, 
and we, and we do it a little more effectively in some ways, life can be, we can minimize some of the harm that folks experience unnecessarily. Well, so I think the, the key here is, is that, yeah, conceptually, you know, having paying taxes and then expecting it to be redistributed in a certain way, um, there's a middleman involved, right? Mm-hmm. And overhead, just like a lot of organizations have nowadays, right. even nonprofits that do really good work. But you look at organizations that are like really top heavy, like the Red Cross, for example, and all of the cr- criticism that they've had to deal with. Mutual aid, the core value is the lack of middlemen. There's no middleman. Like we, so when we say that we've transacted $42 million, not $1 has gone into a pandemic of a bank account. We are right. not a one C three organization. We're a grassroots led volunteer organization that is a nonprofit disruptor. Mm. And I'm not saying that nonprofits shouldn't exist. I sit on the board of many, there, there is a space for that. But what this does is it sort of, it just eliminates the middleman. Mm. It therefore, when you use the term, like it's, it's more efficient. Yeah, certainly it's more efficient because it's direct. You know, so the, the, it's it's like going to your next door neighbor and saying, right. hey, Johnny, what do you need? And Johnny says, I need my electric bill paid or I don't have enough money for groceries. And you say, OK, here you go. And it's done, you know, as opposed to applying for something and then waiting and then having to get like a background or waiting in line at the food bank and then getting finally after five hours to the front of the line and there's like no food left. And we need all of these things to exist, totally. right? Be- totally. Because of our systemic failures and not having equity and, and things like UBI and all these other things. But the idea is that it's such an easy thing for communities to, to enact, to actually put into place, both on a micro level, like if you put it in a, in, if you're talking about like your own community of friends, let's say, or community of peers or activists, et cetera, but it's also something that, you know, when I think about the long term and I think about like, okay, the pandemic ends, pandemic of love kind of goes away, what happens next? Well, I mean, I would like to live in a world where every municipality in this country, mm. just like we have a fire station, a police force, and we have a city hall, that we have a mutual aid community. It's like a Craigslist, if you will. You're solving my big question, which is like, how do you replicate com- like that sense of community in yeah. the modern world where people are transient and bounce around and everything? And that's really interesting that municipalities then like could not codify it, but just embrace this and make it a part of being being in those communities. Interesting. How do you see that playing out? So what, what does that look like then? Uh, have you have you talked to municipalities about adopting this? I'm sort of looking at cities that are more conscious or have conscious leadership and therefore would be more open to this to sort Amazing. of piloting what this looks like. And, um, and then we would create the templates, like our organization would template it out and almost like mutual aid in a box, like here it is, and let's help you customize what this looks like. Right. The best example that I can give you of like how I envision this working is think about it this way. It's like a multi-level marketing structure in a way, right? Yeah. But like in a good way, right? It's not Amway, like I'm not trying to sell you anything. No offense to anybody selling Amway who's listening to this podcast, but you look at what happened in LA. So Los Angeles was like one of the first cities to come online as a micro community. Micro community is not in any way, shape or form when you think about Los Angeles. Right, right, right. But I was like, okay, sure. 
you know, let's, let's do it, you know, because we were just like, go, 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 trying to get as many people as much help as we can. And what happened was that in the, in the subsequent weeks, we got emails from individuals in areas around Los Angeles. So like Venice and from West Hollywood and from San Fernando Valley and from, you know, just like different areas. And so what I started to do was sort of build this pyramid where it was like, okay, there's Los Angeles. And then then in Los Angeles, there's all of these like sub communities. Is geography the most important when it comes to mutual aid? Is that what you found? Is like a lot of it was to be able to be helpful, you need to be geographically nearby? Beyond financial, yes. So okay. look, there's a lot of communities that where we don't have chapters and we still help individuals. They just fill out the national form and we might match them up with somebody, you know, somebody in Alabama could be matched up with somebody in Oklahoma. Like it's not... And, and it's really just about like, let's have a conversation on the phone and let me pay your phone bill or something like that. Right. But what happens is, is that in these communities, like in Boulder or in San Jose or in Santa Cruz County, or, you know, even in Manhattan or Brooklyn, where we have chapters in the Bronx, what happens is that because of the physical proximity, the geographic proximity, you can offer somebody so much more. So like we have a chapter now in, in Michigan and, and in one of our, uh, in Fenville, Michigan, I know all these cities now in America, by the way, <laughs> Fenville, Michigan, there was, a, there was a guy that our chapter not only helped, but actually like above and beyond help. So he, right. was, he was working in a factory, lost his job, uh, was living in his car with his twin six-year-old daughters during the summer. And didn't have a job, didn't have income, didn't have a house. And yet this is Michigan. So now we're into the fall and, you know, the leaves are changing. Things are getting cold up there, you know, and he uh, managed to find a job, but there's just, he's so behind. And like, it was so impossible for him to just even think about put piecing together first, last and security. And so we were able to pool you know, nationally, everybody's like Hilton rewards points or Hilton honors points and, and get him and his girls into a hotel for a couple of weeks until we were able to find enough donors that incrementally were able to raise enough money to get him first, last and security deposit and find him an apartment. But then he had this like empty apartment. So yeah. this is where the beauty of the micro community works because suddenly it's like, I've got a couch and I have, you know, a wow. dining table and I have a mattress and I've got extra linens. And suddenly this guy's house is like completely furnished. Um, he has a job and his car was fixed because somebody knew a mechanic or their husband was a mechanic or whatever. And it's, that's the beauty of mutual aid. It's beautiful. It's so beautiful to watch like everybody come together and just realize that like, we're all responsible for one another. Totally. Uh, it, it gives me hope. You know, like your story makes me so happy and so sad at the same time because we live in a country that would allow that for someone, you know, but it gives me hope because systemic reform can be a slow, can be a slow journey. Uh, well, I'm so excited for that future. I'm excited to help you in any like way I can. Yeah, I just, I guess before we jump, I want to like just kind of give you the space to say like, how do we help make either make that a thing or help you now? I just want to give you the space to share what you want to share. Well, in the most immediate sense, to close out the year, you know, we have been really focusing on the holidays and making sure that people have what they need. And I'm not just talking about like making sure that like a kid has like a toy under, you know, yeah, yeah. but actually keeping people in their homes, 
um, making sure that they don't get evicted and that they don't go into foreclosure, uh, that their lights are still on so that they could have a Christmas tree or a menorah. That's like the eviction thing's going to be scary for sure. Yeah, it's, What's it's coming really up? Scary. So we're we're focused right now, uh, and we're working specifically with COVID survivors for change, which is the organization that's been staging the empty chair memorials around the country to identify families who have lost. Uh, a wage earner, like a, you know, a parent Mm. to COVID-19 since March. And so we have thousands of families, unfortunately, tens of thousands of families now that we are actually working with creating wish Amazon wish lists for, um, and, and, and just getting companies and individuals to, uh, to sponsor, uh, and commit to adopting that family. And that needs not going anywhere. I mean, COVID cases are, we're at 150,000 COVID cases a day right now. So that's, that's only going to increase. Uh, it definitely will. I mean, I think, you know, I would just say to, to anybody listening that even if you could only dedicate like an hour of your life a week, it's so meaningful to be able to actually impact and affect directly the life of an individual. So even if you don't have the financial wherewithal to give, and you could be somebody that's like a matcher or a vetter or somebody that even creates like Amazon wish lists in your free time. We need your help. You know, this is this is something that community care relies on just that, on community, not on you know, on on one individual, but actually every one of us throws that little pebble in the pond and it creates these like ripple effects. And so if we can all do that simultaneously, we can I believe create huge waves. And I think we've demonstrated that those waves can become tsunamis in a good way. Wonderful. You're so inspiring. I'm so, so happy we've met and crossed paths and I'm, I get to hopefully continue to play some sort of role in, in your life and in, in, in your initiatives that, that you're putting together. So um, thank you so much for spending time with me. Thank you. Love you. Bro. All right. You have a wonderful day. Love you too. Bye. Thank you for listening to What We Don't Know. If you're looking for more content like this, you can head over and be a supporter on our Patreon, patreon.com slash WWDK. You can also follow us on social. We're WWDKpod on Twitter and Instagram. I hope this finds you happy, healthy, and safe. All right, take care.